Renewable energy from solar panels and wind turbines is rapidly becoming the cheapest form of electricity there is. The prospect of cheap, limitless, emissions-free energy is here. Harnessing it will take a transformation of our infrastructure, including innovation in how we store and distribute energy, and it will demand that consumers and businesses adapt to new technologies. To capture the benefits of clean energy, we'll need more of our energy use to come from the electric socket rather than fuels that flow directly into cars, homes and factories. We'll need to electrify everything. From home heating systems to container ships and steel-making plants. But how do we do that? This is New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit. On today's episode, our last in the series, we'll find out what it takes to transform our economies around sustainable sources of energy. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. The rise of renewable energy in just the past decade has been extraordinary. In the span of 10 years, solar has gone from being the most expensive source of energy around to the cheapest. In lifetime costs, accounting for the costs of building a plant and running it over its lifetime, solar energy is now the cheapest form of electricity in history. It's not just solar. Wind, too, has seen extraordinary improvements. The gains are in large part thanks to aggressive investment and subsidisation. Costs are falling and adoption is rising faster than the annual reports of analysts can keep up with. So the wind and solar sectors have grown massively in the last 10 years. By our last count, roughly 10% of the world's power was coming from either wind or solar. Albert Chung is head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I think what's really remarkable about wind and solar is that they've just come on leaps and bounds in terms of the technology, both in terms of the efficiency, so how much sunlight you can convert into solar, how much of the wind you can capture from a, from a certain wind turbine, but also in terms of cost. Solar power is now about 10 times cheaper than it was a decade ago. Wind is about three times cheaper. And these are pretty phenomenal advances. So the, the economics alone should ensure that our eventual transition to near enough 100% clean energy. Um, but how quickly do we expect that to, to happen? How much of our electricity supply do you reckon will be deriving from renewable sources in, in 2030, 2050? So we do see an acceleration coming. We have a nice one-liner, which is that two-thirds of the world's people now live in places where either wind or solar is already the cheapest form of electricity that you can build, which I think is phenomenal. And when we think about the long term, um, we do a lot of modelling for the long term. It's very difficult to predict what happens. But one thing we do is that we model what would the power sector look like globally if policymakers around the world just built whatever was cheapest. So you just take your prediction of power demand and you build a power system that's going to be the cheapest to meet that power demand out to 2050. And the answer we get is about 56% wind and solar by 2050. Add on other renewables, nuclear, and you get to about three quarters fossil-free power by 2050. And then I think the other interesting point is that although globally, you know, we get to 56% wind or solar or three quarters fossil-free, Some countries get well above 90% zero carbon energy. Those are countries that have good wind and solar resources. Places like Spain, for example, get very, very close to 100%, even in our least cost modeling. So I'm actually very confident that, you know, if we set our minds to it, we could get to 
100% clean power by 2050. It won't be entirely wind or solar. You'll need some other technologies, but it seems very doable. Reaching that target will require modernising the electric grid and innovation in energy storage. The good news is that renewable energy is now the cheapest form of generation. Ramya Swaminathan is chief executive of Multa, a Boston-based startup developing innovative ways to store energy. On the face of it, it sounds like terrific news, right? Um, Renewables are everywhere, they're growing, and we're getting cleaner, cheaper electricity. So what's the challenge? What's the problem? The problem is that renewables are intermittent, which means that they're sometimes available, they're sometimes not. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and sometimes they're there in excess which is sometimes the wind blows really hard for for many days or possibly weeks. And when you add good solar um, and you keep adding solar capacity, you get more and more energy generation in the same hours of the day. And so one of the basic problems that grid operators globally are facing is that there's more and more of this intermittency, more and more power at some times and less and less power at other times. The largest form of electricity storage today is something called pumped hydroelectricity storage. And you may be familiar with it. It is um, two reservoirs separated by a lot of elevation. And the way you store electricity in that kind of system is that you pump water from a low elevation reservoir, that is a low reservoir, to a higher reservoir when electricity is plentiful. And when you need the electricity, you run it back down Uh, to the lower reservoir and run that through a generator and generate electricity. That's a very old technology. It actually constitutes about 95% of electricity storage globally. And electrical power is not something you can store up against a threatening rainy day. It has to be manufactured instantly. So Mount Eladir was chosen to solve the problem of sudden, unpredictable demands. They built inside it the Denorwick Pumped Storage Power Station, an unromantic name for the new... Pumped hydro storage has been a terrific solution um, in the cases that has been used, but it's not scalable to the need that the globe has today. And it's because you don't have enough sites with that specific elevation difference that would result in the ability to construct a pumped hydro storage situation. So when you add these two kind of dynamics together, which is you know, more and more renewables, increased intermittency, and real difficulties for grid operators to provide reliable, resilient electricity every time we need it, and the fact that our traditional form of storing electricity is not really able to provide the needs for the future, that's what's leading really to this terrifically uh, fertile time for technology developers of all kinds to develop new technologies to solve this problem. And one way to think about the Malta technology and the system that we're developing is that it's similar to pumped hydro, except instead of pumping water from low elevation reservoir to a high elevation reservoir, we are pumping heat from a low temperature reservoir to a high temperature reservoir. And what is it that you are, are heating up? I mean, how, how does the system as a whole work? Just like a battery, there's a charge side. When you have excess power or you're looking to store the power, you charge the device. And 
the charge side of the system is what's called a heat pump. And the best known examples of heat pumps that I can give you would be refrigerators or air conditioners. And so what they do essentially is they take electricity and they convert it into thermal energy. And they do so by pumping heat from a cold side to a hot side. And we're pumping the heat from a low temperature reservoir. The cold is stored in just an antifreeze fluid. And the hot side is stored in salt, which when you heat it up to certain temperatures, um, in our case to 565 degrees centigrade, it actually is an excellent store of heat and it becomes liquid. And so the stored electricity, the stored energy sits in this hot reservoir and the cold reservoir until it's needed. And so that's the generation side of the system. And on the generation side of the system, our the technology that we use is a heat engine. And we all know heat engines, even if we don't know them by that name, because that's kind of the standard way a traditional fossil plant, electricity plant works. A heat engine, you have a, uh, a, a turbine and compressor, a powertrain, and we generate electricity through that powertrain. Malta's electrothermal system is one of a range of solutions to the energy storage problem being developed. Albert Chung says we'll need a whole host of solutions suiting different contexts. So innovation in energy storage is, is kind of at a crossroads. I think it's going to take two different paths. On the one hand, you have the, the auto and battery makers that are pursuing technologies like solid state batteries, which will be brilliant for electric vehicles and even potentially electric aircraft because they'll pack so much energy into a, into a low weight package. But for the grid, weight doesn't matter. So actually, I think you're going to see a, begin to see a divergence now where companies looking to innovate on the grid storage side are going to be thinking much less about energy density and much more about duration of storage. A simple way to think about it is, you know, you need storage that can respond very, very quickly in seconds to, to grid disturbances or even in milliseconds to disturbance on the grid. You want storage that can provide a few hours of storage to deal with, you know, when the sun goes down, et cetera, et cetera. And you need storage that can ride through, or some sort of solution that can ride through long periods. You know, it could be several days when there's no there's no wind, for example. And lithium-ion can do the first two of those things. It can do sub-second response. It can do hours of storage. It can't do three days. It can't do four days. And so I think that's where we're seeing, you know, money being invested, companies innovating around new technologies that are going to try and solve that kind of three, four-day winter lull problem. Energy storage will be central to handling intermittent energy supply. With the electrification of more of our energy use, particularly in electric vehicles, electricity demand is changing too. We'll use more of it at different times of day. To balance supply and demand across a more distributed energy system, we require a new grid with new rules. The watchword is going to be flexibility. So it's about how can you add flexibility to the system? How can you create flexible infrastructure that will be able to cope with the changes that are happening both on the supply side and the demand side? There are a few different ways you can do this. You can add storage to the grid, and that allows renewable power to be stored, typically for a few hours for, for when it's needed. You can add flexible generation to the grid. This could be you know, natural gas, gas-fired generation, or if you want it to be zero carbon, it'll need to be hydro or something like biomass, biomethane or hydrogen or, or gas with carbon capture and storage. But a lot of those technologies aren't yet economic or aren't yet at scale. A third option is to make your demand more flexible. I think this one's really interesting through technologies like smart meters, 
You can create incentives for power users to shift their demand to a time when there's more renewables and power prices are lower. And for me, the obvious one here is electric vehicles. These cars in aggregate will represent a giant battery that's essentially an energy store. So just simply charging a car at optimal times will be a huge opportunity. And then I think the last option is to add distributed resources, things like small scale solar and storage at residential buildings or at commercial buildings. And the benefit to these technologies is not only do you add flexibility, uh, you know, if you're adding small scale storage, that's storage that can contribute to grid balancing, um, but you're also reducing the need for network investment and you're adding resilience. You're effectively reducing how much power the grid company uh, needs to transport through its grid, which means less investment required. And it also means that if the grid does go down, which we've seen in places like California and, and Texas recently, it means that some buildings can still have power because the power is generated on site. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. Pictay's senior technology analyst, Christopher Silen, sees rapid development in energy storage innovation. The energy revolution is gathering speed. Renewables are taking a bigger share of the energy mix, thanks to innovation from the private sector and signals sent by governments that decarbonisation is the only way to avoid a catastrophic climate change. But we must increase the speed of transition. Only 11% of global primary energy came from renewables in 2019. To make these solutions sustainable, Christopher believes we must turn our attention to diversifying our systems of energy storage. We think what triggers exponential progress is getting technologies down to competitive cost levels. Remember, electric cars have been around for more than 100 years but it's only recently that batteries have become economically viable. Similarly, the technologies driving today's energy revolution, like solar panels and wind turbines, are not new. The problem is getting them to attractive cost levels to be rolled out at scale across different types of applications. Today's innovation in energy storage is driven by a collection of players, startups, academic institutions, and major energy companies. The latter are crucial as they have the resources and technical capabilities to support change. Hydrogen, for instance, is a promising energy source and is attracting investments for some of the oil and gas giants. Firms, once focused only on fossil fuels, are moving into renewables and electricity, which in turn will lead them to focus more on the storage problem. Patenting activity in batteries and electricity storage solutions accelerated four times faster than the average for all technology fields between 2005 and 2018. But this progress has not been evenly distributed. Japan and Korea are leading markets in battery technology, although the US and Europe are also investing heavily. Europe already has five major gigafactories in operation and plans for 11 more by 2030. Mass production has cut lithium-ion battery prices by an incredible 90% since 2010, and by around two-thirds for stationary applications like electricity grid management. To meet our climate goals, we need nearly 10,000 gigawatt hours of batteries and storage by 2040, 50 times the size of the current market. But for economies to drop the fuels they've relied on for centuries, we need system-wide innovation that makes the storage, distribution and recycling of energy viable on a global scale. That was Christopher Silen of Pictay Wealth Management. 
The rise of renewables promises a clean energy future. But still, much of the energy we use doesn't come from the electric grid. We burn fossil fuels to power our cars, to heat our homes, and industrial processes like making steel. With the prospect of plentiful, cheap, clean electricity, we need to electrify more things. We absolutely have to electrify everything. There really is no other pathway to decarbonizing. This is Saul Griffith, chief executive of independent research company Other Lab, innovator and author of a forthcoming book called Electrify, in which he advocates for the rapid and massive electrification of the global economy. It's now the timescale under which we do it, which is critical. We've basically committed emissions, meaning the fossil fuel machinery that already exists in the world, if it's allowed to live out its natural life, will take us close to two degrees. So to stay under two degrees, you need to buy the electrical, renewable or nuclear powered machine every time you buy a hot water heater, a furnace, an automobile or a power generation facility at every decision point everywhere in the world for the next 20 years. That's the urgency and the scale of the challenge. If we do it right and we regulate it right, we will save money for every household in in pretty much every country in the world. And so there's a lot to be won. And we need to just get this to massive scale. The costs of all of these things have fallen drastically over the last decade. We need to increase the rate of production of solar and wind by about 10x and of batteries and electric vehicles by about 10x. And just the scale of that industrial effort will lower the cost of all these things by another 50% and make it economic for all of us. So we've got to eliminate the excuses not to do it. Electrification will be essential to decarbonisation, and it needs to happen quickly. Our electricity infrastructure will need to handle three to four times as much demand, a huge strain on the grid. Can it cope? Albert Chung again. You know, you'll hear a lot of scare stories about how electric vehicles are going to break the grid and so on. We, we don't think that's right. We did a study last year that showed that in a typical European country like the UK or Germany, you might have somewhere around 65% more power demand by 2050 than you have today, based on pretty high electrification rates in terms of electrifying your vehicle fleet, your building heating, um, and also some industrial processes. And that 65% figure, that's a pretty manageable rate if we plan ahead. That's about 2% growth per year over the next 30 years. So that's manageable. I think the interesting thing is that all of these different elements of demand will have different demand characteristics. So, for example, a a typical electric vehicle is stationary for something like 95% of its lifetime. So if it's plugged in during that time, that load could be really flexible and we could charge them when there's good wind or solar resource that could really help with grid management. Industrial heat uh, tends to be very flat. So for industrial heat, I'm talking about electrifying the heating that's used in food production or in paper production, potentially even in steel production in the future. Those processes tend to run on a constant basis all day long and in some cases at night as well. So that will tend to just lift your overall power demand throughout the year, throughout the day. Building heat is the one that's a bit trickier. It's both seasonal and a bit spiky, so it tends to peak in the evenings when homes need to be warm, and it's many times more heating demand in the winter than in the summer, so it's going to strain the system in, in quite new ways. But overall, as I said, you know, 65% growth in power demand in a European country after 2050, that does seem pretty manageable. Some parts of our economy will be harder than others to electrify. Consumers will need to change how they live, 
embracing electric cars and swapping out gas boilers for electric heat pumps. Innovation in electric vehicles and their rapid adoption is promising. They're expected to become cost-competitive with conventional fossil fuel cars in the next few years. But switching from cheap and effective gas boilers to more expensive and less instantaneous electric heat pumps is a harder sell. Albert Chung says the way consumers embraced electric vehicles shows us the path to electrifying other areas like home heating. I think costs are a really big part of it, but I think if you talk to someone about buying an electric vehicle 10 years ago, they wouldn't have just talked about cost, they would have talked about all, all other considerations like range, uh, charging infrastructure, etc., etc. Personally, I think we've reached a very different point in that conversation where, yes, the costs are coming down and, and we think electric vehicles will be competitive very soon in the next few years, even on an upfront basis, the, the actual car itself. But I think the conversation's really changed where, as a consumer now, you don't actually have to think for ages about, what well, A, about costs because they're coming down, but B, about where am I going to charge? How much range am I going to have? All of those things have improved so much to the point where, you know, if you, if you look at it, they're pretty much sorted or they're well on their way to being sorted. And I think you'll see more and more consumers just switch over because it's a good product. They can see charges in their neighborhood. It's just a better car. I mean, the best example of this is in Norway, where about half of all new cars sold now are electric. And the reason they're so far ahead is because they had this very generous tax break that made EVs cost competitive earlier than in other countries. To me, that's just a nice example where you make them cost competitive, it takes perhaps 10 years or so, but then you get to that point where it's mass market and now you know, half of all new cars sold are electric. And it just becomes a no-brainer because you look around, everybody's doing it. And you, as a consumer, you don't go through the same mental process of assessing a new technology. You're more assessing just, okay, if it works for everyone else I know, it's going to work for me. And I, I think that's a really powerful thing. Many of the barriers to a clean energy future are systematic and bureaucratic, not technological. Saul Griffith believes we have the technical means to address climate change through a wholesale rapid embrace of clean electricity. But adopting new technologies will require governments to play their part. We need to fix incentives and regulations. Right now we have mostly disincentives around the world for converting heat. For example, to disconnect the natural gas line to my house in Australia where I'm making this phone call from, they have a $450 surcharge to make it even harder for you to disconnect. There's building codes and regulations that make the cost of the electrification of your heat much higher. In the United States, for example, there's a, there's a historical accident. America is on 110 volts, which means that for your electric dryer or for a heat pump to replace your furnace or for a heat pump to replace your water heater, you need to install a high voltage, high current circuit, which means which, which is a fairly expensive circuit to deploy in your home. So what we really need to do is understand that it's what these are what they are they call the soft costs. So it's not the physical cost of the heat pump or the physical cost of the solar or the physical cost of the batteries that's really the barrier to getting the costs where they need to be. It's the regulatory environment that makes all of these things more expensive. And so certainly a lot of our work at Rewiring America is trying to figure out in America, although I'm also doing a little bit of this in Australia right now, how do we change the regulatory environments so that we can make the electrification of these things as cheap as possible? And you can certainly do some calculations and draw a picture for yourself that if we get the regulations right, 
there's a lot of money to be saved. In the US, we did a study on households. If we get it right in the US, by 2025, where the technology prices will be, it'll save every household about $2,000 a year. In Australia, it'll be three dollars to $4,000 a year. But again, that's only if we eliminate those soft costs and the regulatory costs. But I think that's, we should just pause there and think about that. What an extraordinary change of tune around solving climate change, where we go from, oh, isn't it going to be hard and isn't it going to be terrible to, okay, if we get this right and we regulate it in the right ways and we finance it in the right ways, critically, these things require low cost of financing, then we're going to be able to save very substantial amounts of money for your average household. So we've looked at this at a household level, at transport uh, and at heating. What about industrial processes? Lots of our energy use comes from burning fossil fuels directly. Is, is there a pathway to electrifying some of these sectors? The industrial sector is one of the most confused and it was really the, the remainder sector when they initially designed these sectors. Some unusual things happen in that sector. For example, in the industrial sector, we use oil to convert oil into gasoline or petrol and do the refining of it. The industrial sector in the US contains the mining sector. The largest proportion of the energy used in the mining sector is used to mine, wait for it, coal, oil, and natural gas. These uses of energy to find and create and mine more energy pervert and heavily weight the industrial sector. So in fact, a huge amount of number of the emissions of the industrial sector disappear when you stop using the industrial sector to create your fossil fuels for you. The reality is making aluminium is already electric. The CO2 emissions from making aluminium are due to the electrode burning off in the arc furnaces that we have, but there are already experimental processes being scaled up you know, including Apple computer is now using aluminum that's made with a process where they don't use electrodes that produce carbon dioxide. So that's a completely electric process that is eliminating emissions from aluminum. Most recycled steel, and hopefully we continue to recycle ever greater portions of steel, is already an electric arc process. We are pretty confident that there are electric steel making processes that include hydrogen that will give us virgin steel that is largely electrified and completely decarbonized. Pretty much every process within industry, there is an electrification pathway that you can be confident will drastically lower the emissions. These are high capital cost and longer term projects to really bring up to scale. And that's why I think intellectually, you need to think about these things as being the things we work on up until 2030 and start deploying 2030 to 2040, which emphasizes not wasting time on the other components of the decarbonization problem, which is greening the grid with renewables and maybe with some nuclear, and then electrifying transportation and electrifying our commercial and residential building sectors. That is it for this episode of New Foundations, and indeed the series. If you liked what you heard, you can find out more about the series, as well as articles and further reading, at newfoundations.economist.com. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support of this series. Music